I want to begin by reading a passage of Scripture in uh, 1 John chapter 4. It's not where we're going to be this morning necessarily, but it sets the tone for all that is going to come afterwards. Beginning in verse 7, John writes these words. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word means the atoning sacrifice. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us, say it, his spirit. You know what today is? in the church liturgical calendar? Of course, we're Baptists. We don't know that. (laughs) Today is Pentecost Sunday. You know what Pentecost Sunday is, right? What happened in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and upon people and, and filled them and gave them power to minister. Let me ask you a question. Are you Pentecostal? Are you? Good. Somebody's awake. If, you, if you've got the Holy Spirit residing in you because you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are Pentecostal, so to speak. Amen? And that should manifest itself in a way that is visible to others. And so let me ask you a bunch of questions this morning as we begin. Do you love God? They're rhetorical questions, okay? You don't have to answer. I want you to ponder them. Do you really love God? Think that through before you answer. Think through what the scripture that I just read says about how true love for God manifests itself. How do you treat the poor? How do you treat the rich? How do you treat the needy and the sick and the destitute? How do you treat those of a different faith from ours? How do you treat Muslims? How do you treat the Jews? How do you treat blacks and Hispanics and the Irish or the French? How do you treat teenagers? How do you treat the elderly? How do you treat your family? For that matter... How do you treat each other? How do you treat anyone who is not like you? Or better yet, do you even acknowledge these people at all? As the answering these questions may bring us to a place we really don't want to be, a place of Holy Spirit conviction. 
God said plainly that if we don't love these people, there is a serious question if we really love him. The way you love the least of these or the way you love the most of these or the way you love the worst of these is the way that you love Christ. There is something here in James chapter 2 for every one of us, every single one of us. So turn to James chapter 2. Last time we were together, as we looked at the first four verses of James chapter 2, we unpacked the revealed truth that favoritism is foreign to the faith. You remember that? I know it was a stretch. It was a few weeks ago, but that was the message. But today we're going to look a little closer at that concept because James expands the thought and tells us that not only is favoritism foreign to the faith, But in verses 5 through 13 of this text, he lays out a little heavier charge, and he says simply this, favoritism is not just foreign to the faith, but favoritism is an affront to the faith. Look with me at James chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Verse 5, who is the, oh, I'm sorry, still in 1 John here. uh, James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise God for that. There's something about James that we cannot escape, if you haven't noticed already. Bluntness. Right? As usual, he pulls no punches in this text. He lays the truth out there in all of its rawness for us to deal with. And um, anybody want to take a guess where he got that practice from? I can't be certain, but I think he may have learned a little of it, a bit of it, as they say in the UK, from his brother, Jesus. I remember back in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said something to the effect of, you know what, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and you hate your mother and you hate your brother and you hate this and that and the other thing, right? And then he just leaves it there. What's that all about? Are you really advocating hate, Jesus? Well, obviously not. He's using a literary device to bring something front and center to us. If you don't love me to the supreme maximum, where everything else in comparison seems like hate, you cannot, you're not able to be my disciple. So James, I think James is using the same kind of thing here in this passage, and we'll get to that in a minute, but James doesn't just drop the bomb like Jesus did so many times and then leave it. 
Now, he explains the reasons why here in this text in pretty clear terms. And he gives four, actually, four reasons. He says that favoritism is an affront to the faith. And the first one is this. A spirit of favoritism conflicts with God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Okay? James is like, hear this, brothers. Listen up. I'm going to ask you a pointed question now. Didn't God choose, handpick those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in the realm of faith? Hasn't he promised all those who love him in the kingdom? The kingdom? Now, he asks these questions, pointing them back to the fact in the first four verses, that treating um, the rich man, or treating the poor with contempt as they were doing, and the rich man with special consideration simply because of their outward appearances and social status, made them judges with evil motives. They were brown-nosing the rich man and snubbing the poor. But James showed them that an attitude like that is completely inconsistent with God's pattern in the Scripture. God has chosen the poor to be equal heirs in the kingdom. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean that all the poor are saved. That's not what James is saying. James qualifies this by saying that only those who love him will inherit the kingdom. You see that in the verse? What James is getting at is that poverty doesn't put them at a spiritual disadvantage in comparison to the rich, which is what the going thought was. He's utilizing this literary device, as Jesus did uh, in the previous example, to make a point. As Alistair Begg put it, he says, it is generally the case that God chooses the poor, but not invariably the case. We have many examples in scriptures where God chooses the rich as well, right? So throughout the scriptures, though, we repeatedly encounter God's divine choice of the poor. In fact, as one commentator put it, he said, in the Old Testament, I quote, God's promises were often addressed especially to the poor of the nation because it was in this class that godliness had maintained itself, unquote. Even in the New Testament, the coming of Messiah results in the reversal of fortunes for many of the people of the world. In her famous prayer and declaration, the Magnificat, Mary, Jesus' mother, announces this. Quote from Luke chapter 1. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, it must be noted here that the inheritance of the kingdom in no way is secured because people lack material goods. In other words, they didn't secure salvation just because they were poor. God's choice of the poor is not merited by their earthly lack, but only by the gift of his grace. Is that right? just like anyone comes to Christ. You say, well, why then did James say this? Why does God in the scriptures and in life seem to continually choose the poor for salvation? Well, I'll give you two reasons, and they're biblical. Number one, the poor are more apt to come to faith in Christ 
Why? Jesus himself said that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that in Mark chapter 10? Why? It's hard for them to break the hold of the material goods of this world. They often fail to see their own need. Their material, educational, and social competence often blinds them to their need for spiritual dependence. Okay? It's not, again, it's not invariably across the board, but generally speaking, you can see that. Second reason, the poor are less apt to boast. They have no reason to. Conversely, they are keenly aware of their need most of the time. Anyone who is poor in spirit, and by the way, the word poor here in James chapter 2 can mean both things. It can mean materially impoverished, or it can mean spiritually humiliated, empty. I think James is really getting at the material end of things here, but I think it, it, it really can include both. Anyone who is poor in spirit recognizes that he has no assets, either materially or spiritually, in himself to commend him. He knows that he is empty and in need of God. He has no self-confidence in himself to save himself, and God can use that kind of person, can't, can't he? In fact, that's the kind of person he uses. Hold your finger in James 2 and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For a moment, verse 26. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29. So that no man may what? Boast before God. It's pretty clear there. And church history supports the fact that comparatively speaking, the poor have responded to the gospel much more readily than the rich. Historically, God has consistently chosen the poor to be rich in faith. But James emphatically points out that you, he says, you, meaning me and you, have actively despised and dishonored them. If you prefer and give preference to the rich. And in so doing, he pushes it further You have dishonored God. Proverbs 14.31 says this, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him, meaning God. If you know how God acts toward the poor, James says, why do you insult them by treating them with contempt in your services? Or in general. 1 John chapter 4 again, and verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Here's the sad truth of it all. You and I may think 
in our hearts and in our minds that we are immune to such a concept as James is addressing here. But I'll tell you what, in reality, even subconsciously in our own lives, we know that it characterizes us at times, doesn't it? If not overtly, covertly. The landscape of the American church and its material wealth smacks of it. The very design of our buildings, our campuses, our services, our group activities betray us. Do you know that in James' day, the pyramid of social status was very steep? You were either very, very rich or you were very, very poor. Something like 2% were the rich people and everybody else was in poverty. They didn't have what we have in America, this phenomenon called the middle class. There was a very sharp distinction between the two groups. And it was very difficult to be upwardly mobile in that society. If you were poor, you were poor. You very rarely reached those places that the rich and the wealthy did. James says, you cannot kiss up to the rich and despise the poor whom God has chosen and then claim to have the love of God in you. It is inconsistent. Favoritism in this regard stands in direct contrast to God's sovereign choice. Yet how often do we find ourselves in the subtle practice of it? So let's expand this out a little bit. Let's just say that it's not just poor people we're talking about. Let's just say it's somebody a little bit poorer than us. Let's just say it's somebody that maybe is not as educated as you. Or somebody that doesn't carry themselves as well as you or dress as well as you and me. How do we treat them? Do you treat those less fortunate with contempt and rudeness? Have we ever? And again, maybe not outwardly, but in our hearts and in our minds when we're in the same place with them. You know, these rhetorical questions that I keep asking and and that I challenged ourselves, myself included with, at the beginning of this message really are important, aren't they? I mean, in the end, for some, they will turn out to be of ultimate importance. If you turn to Matthew chapter 25, you will see that. Jesus talks about it. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them one from another the shepherd, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to put them, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the converse was true. If you go, fur, uh, if you go further in the, in the text, you realize that Jesus condemned those people who did not do that. Why? Because the way that you treat those who are least is the way that we treat Jesus, isn't it? That's what Jesus said. And we should consider the fact that the poor and the despised, the lonely and the homely, the broken and the beaten, are those so-called left-behind people are very likely to embrace the gospel 
maybe even more so than those who seem to have it all. But our lack of including them in our midst sends a clear message that the church is really not much different than the rest of the world and exalts the rich and tramples upon the poor. That's what the world does. See, they don't want, nor do they need that kind of Christian message, do they? By way of application, consider from where Jesus came. Was he rich or was he poor? Well, he was both. But he became poor. In this world, he was poor. He was despised. He was rejected of men, the Scripture says. He became poor that through his poverty, you and I might become rich, says 2 Corinthians 8 9. Again, Alistair Begg puts it like this. He says, if we're kids of the kingdom, we're supposed to act like the king. And the king took off his crown. He didn't show any airs or graces. And he didn't hang around with just a certain group who fit the framework, his framework. So James really is out of the chute with something strong, isn't he? He, does, he doesn't only call favoritism conflict with God's sovereign choice of the poor, but secondly, he gives another reason. He says the practice of favoritism contradicts good common sense. Look at verse 6 in James 2, the second part of the verse. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So James shows absolute ridiculousness here of the reader's behavior by asking three emphatic questions about the rich and their actions. He says, aren't they the ones who are continually exercising tyrannical power over you? And the word oppressed there emphasizes this brutal deprivation of one's rights. And we see it today everywhere, don't we? The poor are deprived of their rights because they can't afford to have them defended. And the worst part of that kind of thing is it's in the church too. We of all people need to be aware of God's rebuke to the Israelites of old. Ezekiel, back in the Old Testament, and chapter 22, verse 29. Ezekiel writes, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Boy, those are, those are hefty words, aren't they? That causes me, without making detailed application about where is our country going, what do we stand for here? Politically, religiously, Practically. Second question James says is, aren't they the ones that are constantly dragging you into court? They were being oppressed. Their land was being taken away from them. Aren't they the ones who continually slander the name Christian? Now, this is the big one right here that you can all relate to, right? Look at what it says there. 
Do they not, in verse 7, blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Notice that James calls this an honorable or fair name. Literally, it means the name that has been called down upon you. The word fair means beautiful, noble, excellent. It denotes those who belong to the one whose name they bear, Jesus the Christ. Know what it means? Christian, that's the name. Those who fear God, God's people, the people of God. Acts chapter 5, verses, verse 41 talks about that. In 1126, the, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, right? In Acts chapter 5, I think Chris preached on this when I was gone. They were counting themselves blessed because they were worthy to suffer for what? The name, right? The name. In the Old Testament, it is seen in verses like 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You know that quote. If my people who are what? Called by my name. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about those of us who bear the name of God, bear the name of Christ. A man in the old, back then was dedicated to God by calling God's name over him. We do that every time we baptize somebody, don't we? Or dedicate a child. The act showed that he belonged to God. The rich, James says, are the very ones who are slandering and blaspheming that excellent name. And by showing partiality toward them, you are not giving that name of God much glory, are you? I.e., be careful how you deal with the rich man and those who have political power and who blaspheme the name of Christ. Don't lock arms with them. Why are you doing that? By showing partiality toward them, you are not giving that name much glory, James says. I worked with a girl before I became a pastor that hated Christians. I worked side by side with her every single day. I was a brand new believer. I actually became a Christian while I was working with this girl. And every time she said the name, it had this disparaging edge in it. You know what I'm talking about? Ever experienced that? That was deliberately honed to pierce your heart. She would say, those Christians, like that. You know, and every time it had that same tone. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. It's interesting to me that he puts a busybody in there with murderers and thieves and evildoers as if busybody is not a bona fide sin, right? It's an acceptable sin. It's not, according to this. But if anyone suffers as a what? Christian. Let him not feel ashamed of that, but in that name, let him glorify God. I am a Christian. I am one of those Christians. (laughs) Are you ashamed to be called a Christian? James says that if you show favoritism to the very ones who rip the name of your master apart, then you are not glorifying God because you are not upholding God's name. 
It's an affront, he says, to the faith. Thirdly, James says, an attitude of favoritism is convicted by God's sovereign law. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's just stop right there for a moment. James says, if the shoe fits, wear it. Very simple. I think James may be speaking with a tone of impartiality himself here. He is very willing to give credit where credit is due. In verse 8, that's what he says. He says, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Okay? Now, there have been many interpretations on what the royal law refers to. May describe a law that is sovereign above all others. Royal meaning sovereign. That's one way that you can translate it in this scripture. It may refer to the fact that this law of love that he quotes is the law given by the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's the royal law. Or some think it may be a law that is fitted only for kings and not slaves. But here's what I believe. Yes, it is royal because it was given by the king, but the term royal also means sovereign and supreme. It is the highest form of law that a man can conceive. This royal law also seems to be parallel to the law of love immediately quoted by James, but I believe that the royal law refers to the whole law of God and that the law of love that is quoted is the most important and crucial part of fulfilling that whole law. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the standard for fulfilling the royal law given by God. This is supported time and time again in Scripture and reiterated by the Apostle Paul. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus confronting, you know, with the rich young ruler. Picture behind me, right? What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets, right? Jesus said. And out of those two, which is the one that is most critical to prove that you do the first? The second, right? If you take the Ten Commandments, you can break them right in half, basically. You know, the first few commandments really deal with the love for God. The rest of them all deal with love for your neighbor. Romans chapter 13 Verses 8 to 10 really kind of highlight this. There's a lot of scriptures in this sermon today, so take notes. Verse 8, Romans 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to what? Love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has what? Fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, he repeats it again, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he says, hey, look, do this, knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Hey, the night's almost gone. We got... Short amount of time before Christ comes back, comparatively. 
Are you loving your neighbor? Because Jesus says that's where it's at, right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 in the ESV says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, by the way, was not a new command. We tend to think of this law of love as being New Testament only, but God gave this commandment in the Old Testament. In fact, everything that James mentions about the rich here is condemned in God's Old Testament directive. If you turn back to Leviticus chapter 19, you will see that. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 11, beginning in verse 11. You shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Look at who he's listing here. All those people that are marginalized. All those people that are less fortunate than us, right? You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. If he is the Lord and we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what? Back up, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. When this law of love is carried out in active obedience, the duties of the royal law will be performed. James gives some of them the benefit of the doubt and says that if anyone is indeed continually keeping this law of love, then there is commendation. You do well. He says plainly, keeping the law of love results in reward. James says, well done. You're doing well. And that's what we want to hear, isn't it? Isn't that what you want to hear when you get to heaven and you meet Jesus face to face? Well done. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. See, loving your neighbor is the crux of the issue, friends. It's that. That's why I asked all those questions at the beginning of this sermon. Are we really loving our neighbors? And I'm asking myself those same questions as you. No doubt someone will ask the lawyer, as the lawyer asked in Jesus, you know, in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And then he launches into the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? But asking that question was not a, a, a sincere desire of his to find the answer, was it? Because Jesus said that he, Luke says, and, and underlines it, underscores it, that he was trying to justify himself by asking that question. You tell me, who is your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Everybody is our neighbor. Not just Christians, but everyone that we are able to benefit in any way, shape, or form, whether it's a word, a prayer, a touch, a gift. 
something self-sacrificial that you may do for somebody. Anyone we can help in some way, no matter how small it is, no matter how great it is, if we have obeyed this one command of the Lord, the evangelistic power of the church would be unlimited, immeasurable, and we would be unmistakable as Christ's followers. Love is what Jesus said would identify us as his followers. John chapter 13, verses 24 and 25. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? You have love for one another. Can you honestly say that you love your neighbor as yourself? Chuck Swindoll once put it this way. We're okay with loving our neighbors as long as we get to choose who they are. As long as we get to choose the neighborhood... You see, the supreme test of a church or individual is love. And saying that we love God does not make it so. Let me say that again. Just saying that we love God does not make it so. And we're going to see that in subsequent sermons in James. It has to be active to be real. It pains me to say this. But I can almost say with some certainty that there is somebody in this place today who doesn't really love God. I hope that's not the case. But the law of averages would say otherwise. They may think they do. They may say they do. But in reality, you're really having a hard time reading through these verses comfortably and answering those opening questions that I asked Their lives testify against them. Here's the deal on Pentecost Sunday. Spirit living is the result of right believing. True faith is expressed in true love. It is the outward expression of the inward reality of faith. It's the biblical combination of faith and works which James will be getting to in very short order. Love is the work of faith. It doesn't save you, but it proves you are saved. Because if you don't have love for your neighbor, you don't really have God in your life. Think about that one. 1 John 4, 8 says, and I read it earlier, the one who does not love God, the one who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. That's heavy. James says that if we are living constantly motivated by love, we're doing well. We're doing well. But if not, we're in trouble. Trouble. James doesn't give cred- just give credit where credit is due. But typical of James, he calls a spade a spade. Right? Keeping the law of love results in reward. But Martin Luther, who had made himself the apostle and champion of justification by faith alone, wrote these words, and I quote, Faith is a living, busy, active powerful thing, it is impossible for it not to do us good continually. It never asks whether good works are to be done, but has done them before there is even time to ask the question and is always doing them. That's Martin Luther. So practicing partiality then requires something. According to James... It requires repentance. Look at verse 9. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And he who said, do, okay, let's just end right there for now. Why does it require repentance? Because it's sin. James said it clear. Clearly, James says, be honest. If you're showing favoritism, it's sin. You are committing sin. And he's emphatic about it. It's not just bad manners. He calls it what it is, sin. He says, you're guilty. You missed the mark. You're convicted by the law. That's not what I'm saying. It's what the law says. It's what the word of God says. It's a witness testifying against us. If what we're doing is sin, guess what that makes us? Sinners. James is not messing around. He uses the word transgressor. Where it has an ugly ring to it, doesn't it? Really ugly. And he uses it twice. Twice ugly. It identifies one who has stepped beyond a boundary, literally. And the lines have been drawn by God's law, haven't they? You are to love your neighbor. That's pretty much everybody. But there's a bigger law, the law of love, right? That's the law that, where the lines are drawn. But he said, James says, if you play favorites, you're out of bounds. You've gone out of bounds. You've crossed the line, and you have defiantly crossed the line. And that condemns you as guilty. Another ugly word. Transgressor, guilty. Ugly words. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That if we're guilty as sinners, all we need to do is come to him, confess it, repent of it, receive his sacrifice, receive his forgiveness. And he says, I will come into them and dine with them and he with me, right? And praise God about Pentecost, he'll give us the Holy Spirit too. Guarantee that we're signed, sealed, delivered. I love that. That's the word. And some of you may be thinking, well... Uh, a little favoritism's not so bad. Really, I mean, really, I didn't kill anybody. Right? Really? Is that what you think God really thinks? Jesus didn't die for the sin of favoritism? He only died for murder? I mean, really, let's get serious. James reminds us that God's will for us is not fragmentary, is it? If a person keeps the law and then trips over one boundary area, guess what he is? Guilty. He is under the condemning power of the whole, James says. That doesn't mean that by breaking one law, you have broken every single law individually, nor does it mean that all violations are equally serious, but it does mean that you become guilty, and I become guilty, and we are in need of Christ if we're guilty. Of course, if we have Christ, we're not guilty anymore. Amen? Amen? Then it's a matter of getting back in fellowship with him, confessing our sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's our point of need. And if there's somebody here today that feels that they're guilty because of sin, but they don't have Christ's forgiveness, you need to come to Christ. That's our need of Christ. This is the Christ moment in James' 
passage here. Showing us our need. Obedience is not selective. There is no such thing as relative righteousness. In verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you cross the line in one area, you've broken the whole law, right? As a, as a body, as a unit. Let me illustrate it to you. This little thing that I've got on the stage here, and I hope most of you can see it. I'm going to put right in the middle here a big F. That's the F word of favoritism. This circle is divided into ten parts, kind of like the Ten Commandments, okay? Because James refers to them. You know how hard it is to divide a circle into ten equal parts, by the way? (laughs) It is not easy. So let's just put a couple things on here that James talks about. Let's say, uh, you know, murder is here. And then we've got adultery down here. What else is in there in the Ten Commandments? Thief. Blasphemy. Covet. What else? What else? Oh, gluttony. Well, that's, kind, that's not one of the ten, but it's definitely a sin. We can put that there. False worship, idolatry, lying, breaking the Sabbath. Okay, just leave this open for any sin. <laughs> any sin. Now I'm going to ask for a volunteer to come up. No, I'm not. <laughs> Here's the deal. So... They're all individual things, right? And most people think, well, you know, favoritism's not as bad as murder, so therefore, you know, it's not so bad. Really? James says, if you've broken one, you've broken the whole. So my illustration is, I'd like somebody to come up here and take this hammer and just break one of these. Just one. Can you do it? What happens when you say you break favoritism? That's a rough sin. It does not want to break. Wow. This is my worst nightmare come true. If you're filming this, get the real one. I'm going to give it one more shot, but you get the drift, right? Ready? Watch your eyes. Well, so much for that illustration. (laughs) I go to my second one. D.L. Moody said that if you get 10 links in a chain suspending a man over a precipice, 10 chain links break, the man falls to his death, right? What happens if five break? What happens if one breaks? You get the picture, right? All that work for nothing. Man, why doesn't this ever happen to Bill Hybels? When we break that part of the law marked favoritism, we become lawbreakers in need of forgiveness. Amen? Not only have you broken God's law, but you've broken God's heart. It shows a lack of true reverence for him and breaks our relationship of obedience to him as as, as his disciples. So, That's why James says favoritism is an affront to the faith. 
it conflicts with God's sovereign choice, it contradicts good common sense, and it's convicted by God's sovereign law of love. Finally, I have been laboring here a long time with this, but last point is the sin of favoritism is confronted by God's sovereign judgment, but it's conquered by mercy. It's conquered by mercy. Look at verse 12 and 13. So speak, so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. But judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What we say and what we do are key in our lives as Christians, aren't they? They're the words and music of the gospel to other people. What do you know, but but do you know, let me ask you this, do you know how we will be judged? By this word. By whether or not we've received the fulfillment of this word, which is Jesus Christ. It's not any person that's going to judge you. It's, It's God himself, and he's got the word here that he has spoken to us that testifies. So, That knowledge ought to motivate us toward personal holiness in Christ. If what we do and say is motivated by the law of love, we will desire more than anything else the welfare of other people. We'll not seek to neglect them through acts of favoritism. If we realize that God will deal with us according to the same law that we impose upon others, we might think a little more carefully about how we treat others. That's what it says in verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. What does that mean? That sounds like a works righteousness thing. That If we don't show mercy, we can't be saved. Basically, it's true. What he's saying is, is that if we don't show mercy, it proves you're not saved. Because we've been shown such a great mercy by God in Christ. And he ends on a positive note, not a negative note. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I have one response to that. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. To sum up the text, as I recently heard it, it's probably all you need to take from here, besides the glass that wouldn't break. (laughs) Let Scripture be your standard. Let love be your law. And let mercy be your message. Mercy is pouring out compassion on somebody else doesn't necessarily look at what a person deserves, but what he or she needs. And that's powerful. Triumphantly so. Because everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs mercy. Because there are more lonely and depressed and despondent people in this world today than you can imagine. The next time you walk down a busy street, the next time you walk through the cafe, look deeply into people's eyes and you'll, you'll catch a glimpse of it. At work, look beyond the outward shell of your co-workers. It's there. They need the Lord to fill that emptiness. They need our love to show them the Lord who will fill that emptiness. You know, and... and And if we Christians only want to hang around with each other in our quaint little Christian cliques, you know, us four no more. If that's the mentality, who then will love and show people the mercy and the compassion of Christ? 
If we only want to show mercy to those who meet our standards, we're self-centered and unconcerned, and we are not setting our minds on God's interest. We're setting our minds on man's interest. But there is something else to consider. A bit of twist on favoritism. You know, oftentimes, as one commentator says, our desire to serve Jesus and help others less fortunate than us is lodged, has lodged a message largely hidden from our eyes, but it's abundantly clear to the people that we're helping. If we're not sincere, when we try to play the role of Jesus, offering healing or compassionate touch, sometimes without realizing it, we have staked a claim to have higher status than them and unconsciously adopted an attitude of superiority. Can't do that. Because when we do that, you know what we do? We do not allow them to be the touch of Jesus in our lives. It is possible that we need that touch more than they do. Amen. Good application. Thank you, sir. Listen to that guy. Because weren't you the recipient of mercy when you came to Christ? Weren't you overjoyed at the prospect that somebody looked past your weaknesses, your faults, your poverty, and loved you unconditionally? And how about the fact that we still are continually in need of mercy every day? Do we ever think that those that we minister to could actually minister to us? Mercy is a mark of a person who has true faith. He delights to show that mercy and compassion through us. And the way we show mercy to others gives evidence to whether or not the presence of Christ is within us. So, my beloved brethren, how do you treat the poor? How do we treat the rich? How do we treat the needy and the sick and the destitute, those of a different faith? the Muslims, the Jews, the blacks, Hispanics, the Irish, or the French, teenagers, elderly, your family, and each other. How do we treat people who are not like us? In this is love, God said. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Amen? So let's pray, and I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and pass out the communion elements, because this communion table is a way better illustration than I could ever muster with a, with a piece of glass. What Jesus did at the Last Supper when he instituted the celebration of communion speaks volumes about mercy and love and forgiveness.